Great, we're going to begin. So this is uh, this is our second. Brilliant. This is our this is our second in our series on God's economy of superabundance. And so we, we're looking at the economy. We're looking at finances. That's a, this feels like a, a good time to be digging into this. Um, as always, our talks. We're now on live stream here, uh, and our talks are online. If you want to catch up with the last one that Alice did last week, that then you can. And uh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited about this subject, and um, we're going to hopefully have a little bit of time after Alice has, has taught us to, to, to pray and respond together. So, again, Lord, I just want to think about Bex's picture of um, the lights coming in and uh, spotlighting each of us, and, and we pray that you, you reveal truth, Jesus, to each of us this morning through what Alice brings. Amen. It's lovely to be here. Um, welcome everyone. So this is part two, and I'm a great believer, as anyone who will know me will know, in context. So please, if you've just come and heard this, listen to part one, because I, I don't want to repeat it, but it builds the foundation for part two, where we land in accounts in the early church of how they broke through into extraordinary liberation and heaven-on-earth communities in the early church. So this is really helpful way of thinking. The idea that we are governed by whatever we worship. Can you just say that to the person next to you? It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? We give something allegiance. It therefore has authority or a personal ideology, a way of life has authority over us. We are governed by whatever or whoever we worship. So if we could go to the last slide, we we looked at this last week. Jesus speaks of two masters. In fact, the only time he uses this analogy of mastery is, is an account of do we love God or love money. Money itself is neutral. Obviously, I hope everyone knows that. It's, it's a tool that does stuff. But our, what we put our confidence in, what we think it can deliver for its own sake is the spiritual issue here. And all of us are designed to have intimacy with God. We're created by God for him. He's made a way for each one of us through the death and resurrection in history of Jesus of Nazareth. And so we can all have intimacy with God. There's no one excluded. Everyone's invited into this. However, it's fully volitional, consent-based. We have to say yes. And essentially, we have to allow God to govern us. Because if we don't, as the saying goes, nature abhors a vacuum, something or someone else will already be governing us. It's not like we're autonomous. That's a myth. Sorry to break your hearts at this stage in human history. But we're not autonomous. We're governed. And we're either governed by God, under whose governance leads to life and human flourishing, or we're governed, in this case, by a confidence that money itself will deliver, in this case, protection, provision, and identity. And that will oppress us. We will become people who make decisions out of fear, envy, and greed. So I'm going to now say a list of businesses, of charities, of NGOs, of organizations. And I want you to come up with what they all have in common. Now, this is a really, really um, 
I don't know what you can call it, but the source is Wikipedia. And I always think Wikipedia is great on stuff I don't know. And then as soon as I have specialist knowledge, I'm like, well, isn't that great? So forgive me, I usually try and do three sources for anything on the internet, so you can challenge me on this. But I think these are probably true because it's on Wikipedia. What do these have in common? Amnesty International, Barclays Bank, Glaxo Laboratories, Bethlehem Steel, Cadbury's Cars, Clark Shoes, Friends Provident Life Insurance, Greenpeace, International Voluntary Service, Jacobs Fries, Roundtrees, Lloyds Bank, Oxfam, Sony, or the Stockton, Stockton and Darlington Railway? I think you know. Someone knows. Quakers. They were either founded or co-founded by Quakers. And they contribute still. Many of us would have heard of what they do. I'm, I, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and I don't know that much about the Quaker movement. What I do know, though, and even like Quakers, to whether it's because they quaked under the Holy Spirit or quaked at the word of God. That was the, it was initially like the word Christian. It was a derogatory term applied to this movement and then became the name they took exactly like Methodists as well. Often these start as derogatory and then become the name of the movement. George Fox, who founded it, apparently saw hundreds, uh, was involved in hundreds of miraculous healings. So there was obviously some sort of highly disruptive Holy Spirit movement that started this community of Christians who believed they had direct access to God uh, called the Quakers. However, they were persecuted by mainline Christians uh, at the time in, in terms of England, certainly, or Britain, it would have been the Anglican Church. They, some were actually, were actually some martyrs, but very, most of the persecution was social, so they couldn't become, go to university, they couldn't become members of parliament, and so on. And what I want us to hear is a message of empowerment. So they didn't, apparently, according to that list, particularly the older organizations and, and businesses there, they didn't say, we can't do, did they? They didn't say, we can't do because we're socially persecuted and excluded. They actually said, this is what we can do. And they were prolific for such a small, narrow community of Christians within the broader Christian community. Prolific. And we still know some of the names of, of their organizations that, that started even today. And I think that's what I want, I learned last week from our meditation on the widow and the widow's might, which Andrew led last week. And I feel like that's what God wants to press into on this part too, is, is in Christ, nothing is impossible. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. We are not, we are not defined by cultural circumstances and he disrupts every category in the Hebrew Bible, the rightly so, widows, for example, were disadvantaged, orphans were disadvantaged, all these people absolutely were socially disadvantaged. But the way New Testament writers, the way Jesus spoke to those communities, he was saying, in me, you are not anymore. In me, you can give, and what you give is worthy. In fact, Paul says exactly the same. The gift is acceptable, not to what you haven't got, but according to what you have got. It was a change of mindset. James says the poor in the eyes of the world are rich in faith. It's the rich who will just, who will, who will just wither like the grass of the fields. Blessed are the poor because he's disrupting our social hierarchies about what we think makes someone successful. And he's saying, in me, you disciples, I talked about this last week, minority of minorities, Jewish people under Roman oppression and Greco-Roman culture who follow Jesus. So a minority of minorities, you 
can sell your possessions and give to the poor. You're powerful. You can seek first the kingdom and you can give and it will be given to you in abundance. So he disrupts our own I can't. He disrupts our own poverty mindset. Conversely, he also disrupts our own in independence from God, I can. He, we hit walls of disillusionment, don't we, with broken systems. We hit the end of ourselves. we have compassion fatigue. We think we can bring things and change the world and we realise we can't. So those of us who think we have privilege recognise our poverty. He's disrupting us all the time. But when God saw the mess of the world, he didn't say, I can't. In Christ, he said, I can and I will. I will atone for all humanity. I want resurrection, new life, intimacy. So if we go back to that very, the first slide, I did this last week. You can't say this enough. The invitation of the Bible is basically through the biblical um, scripture, sorry, the next one, is life or death, and, and not a biological life and existence, an overflowing, abundant, spiritual life, marked by peace and joy. That comes out of intimacy with God. That was the invitation in the garden or independence from God, which leads to various words in in the biblical story, exile, death, curses, destruction. It appears seductive. It appears compelling. No one's stupid and intelligent evil isn't stupid. It's shiny. It think, that life of independence from God appears compelling, but it never, its consequences are always emptiness, desolation, barrenness. The route to intimacy with God is always through total and whole life surrender. It's always through death to resurrection. So it is the opposite to what you think. But when you go there with intimacy with God, what comes is abundant life blessing and we we used that word from the critical theorist last week super abundance including an economy of super abundance if we're willing to trust god to be in charge of our life and put our identity provision and protection in him and see it as from him now there's this cycle of the human condition we see in the biblical narratives which still plays out today the israelites the ancient israelites worship god They say, yep, we want intimacy with God. We want what you're offering. They are blessed in every area of their life, identity, provision, and protection. They become complacent. They turn. They worship the gods of the nations around them. They're oppressed by them. They cry out to God for a deliverer. Come back, worship him, and become complacent again after he delivers them and blesses them. That is the cycle of the human condition. Tragically, I don't know enough about it. It's possibly even the cycle of the Quaker movement. And all those incredible movements that have been historically prolific and fruitful. We have to stay in intimacy with God now, not live history's story. We use that to inspire us, but we're living in the moment now of what God has for us now in terms of an economy of superabundance. So if we could go to the next slide. I talked about this last week. There's a critical theorist who unusually is a Catholic and Marxist, usually they're atheists. Who, who have very sharp understanding of the New Testament, and I, I read a bit from it last week about what it says about us. I'm now going to quote Terry Eagleton again, quoting other um, some atheist philosophers and so on about what the, what the New Testament reveals about the nature of God, his abundance, the overflowing, the excess of who we're worshipping, who we're trusting to govern us in, in this area. And don't worry if you don't understand the words or something, just feel what Terry Eagleton's trying to communicate about the nature of God. 
a strain of carnivalesque recklessness, one which scrambles equivalences, upends hierarchies and plays havoc with precise gradations, is central to the Christian gospel. It is a replication in the ethical realm of the groundless nature of creation itself, what the philosopher Quentin Melissou calls the gratuitousness of the given. Ian Bradley speaks of Yahweh as the one who gives himself in a careless and costly way to his people. Sudai Dennis describes the goodness of God as ecstatic, excessive and hyperbolic. Meister Eckhart sees it as a seething or a boiling over, while Aquinas speaks of the divine nature as maxime liberalis. Can't remember much Latin, but I think that means very generous. It is the strange, this strange, impossible, implacable, unconditional love which helps to distinguish Christian ethics from the liberal humanist kind. All religions and humanism and atheism promote charity. Only one faith can provide intimacy, and that's following Jesus. That's the Christian faith. We alone have the monopoly on intimacy with God, out of which charity flows. So Jesus came into the world. The ancient Israelites failed, as they really are a mirror to human failure, to, to stay in that place of intimacy with God. But Jesus modeled for us a way of life that works, that can be truly connected with God in, in times of abundance and in times of challenge, that prioritizes intimacy with God over everything else, that sees that that connection is the life source. After his historical death and resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit is poured out on a, a Jewish festival called Shavuot or Weeks, or actually in the Greek Pentecost. And that birthed a movement which is still growing exponentially in the world today. And there were two passages about what that Holy Spirit outpouring did amongst humanity. Whenever you see anything repeated in the Bible, you pay attention for repetition and repetitions with difference. The authors are trying to communicate something. We don't have enough time to analyze the similarities and differences, but just hear the repeat repetition in Luke, in his account in Acts, of what happens to humanity when the Holy Spirit's poured out. So we go to Acts 2 and Acts 4. I'll just read it and you can like immerse yourself. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There are Bibles on the table. Oh, it's old school. Bibles on the table or phones. Acts 2 verse 42 and then Acts 4 verse 32 and onwards. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So there was two miracles. There's a miracle of physical healing. And I think the miracle God wants to press in on. The, mir the miracle of material unity. Acts 4, 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So something breaks through here. Not just in, uh, in physical health, God is ultimately concerned with physical health and healing. Of course, he's a good father. He wants us to be well. And at the same time, in, in, in delivering the vision that he gave through Moses of eradicating personal and systemic poverty. It's here in the history, in the account of our roots and our heritage Now, we have to do, I say this every time, I'm never going to stop saying this, we have to do a lot of cross-cultural work when we're reading any text in the Bible. We tend to read in English, for the most part here, and English wasn't even a language that was invented when the Bible was written. This is written in ancient Greek, and it's written in a very particular time and place, in an economic system far more simple than our complex system today. So what we have to do is we have to go to it with the mindset of intimacy with God. God, you were real then. That's what happened then. You're real now. What are you saying to us now? Using that as inspiration. I've said this before. I say this again. Lots of religions offer charity, but no other religion offers intimacy. We can walk with God. There's an adventure of faith available to us. We can hear what he's telling us to do and prompting us to do in the area of how we handle our finances that can open the door to the incredible experience of peace and joy and an economy of superabundance. We sense material unity is actually a live word on us. I was asked to, a number of church leaders were asked to bless a building that some friends of ours, pastors Fatima and Ossian, have been able to move their church into. They're a black majority church. And they asked uh, different church leaders to say different things, but they asked me to bless, uh, to bring, declare a blessing over the church and the building and so on. So I was asking, well, what, is, what are the words? Because I don't want to just do something for the religious value of just something to say. I want it to have transactional value and change. And I felt God say, from these Acts 2 passages, the Holy Spirit is poised to be poured out on the city of Bristol. And he's waiting for material unity. So this is a live word. We don't know what that means or what it looks like. That's why we're going on this conversation as a community here. But we know that churches north of the river and white majority churches, so we are a white majority church north of the river, have comparatively more financial resources available than either black majority churches or churches south of the river. Again, we, we let God disrupt our readings of other people. We don't, we don't ever patronize anyone or presume to know anything about someone else. I'm just talking about facts here and talking about what I felt God say to me when I stood there and was encouraged to give a blessing. Maybe the resources are already here within the city and God wants to disrupt our self-protecting strategies of withholding from one another 
that God poured out his spirit on Pentecost, there were two miracles. There were miracles of physical healing and there were miracles of material unity. And we don't want to miss what he wants to do now amongst us in the city. I think that's the gospel is that Jesus breaks down the dividing walls of hostility between us, including our our resistance to sharing. I always really struggled when we had small children. We go to lots of events. Everyone would tell the children, share, share, share. And I was like, we don't share. Why can we call them to do stuff we don't do? That's, that's That's just really, really unfair. So we need to start hearing, and it's hard to hear, isn't it? If we put our identity, provision and protection, if, if money's governing us, it's hard to think how we can allow that to be disrupted. But I actually think if we allow ourselves to be disrupted, to change our mindset, I can't, to I can, I have not, to I have, I'm not a particularly generous person, to I am a generous person. If we start to change our mindset, I think there is going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the, the city of Bristol as, we are, as, as the Spirit's water is higher than our walls. You're always reading someone else's mail, all of us when we're reading the Bible, particularly the actual letters in the New Testament, but even those passages, they're written by someone to someone else and we get to read it in translation. However, we also believe in an inspired, coherent text that that was inspired for all people everywhere. So we take it seriously as a way of hearing how God wants to be in charge of our lives. So in a world system that's marked by fear, greed and envy, we're designed to be distinct, countercultural communities, full of confidence in God's unlimited abundance. By his nature, he's infinitely able to resource his goodness and generosity, we are to be marked as his children by love, generosity, and contentment. So my sort of end thing is basically, and we can say this to the person next to us, don't be scared, be generous. Say that to the person next to you. Doesn't that make you smile? Do you remember last week we said there's a lovely British NIV version, God loves a cheerful giver. And then I think in the message it was been that, God loves a hilarious giver. We are designed to be hilarious because we believe in a God who's continually always full of hope. Always full of hope. He's never hopeless. He is absolutely present in our Gethsemanes and our sufferings to death. He went there, but he never lost hope. He's full of hope. He's overflowing in hope. And we can walk in that, however squeezed we think we are, culturally, societally, financially, and so on. So we want to minister to two groups of people. Now, we want to have a ministry time. The first group of the people who think, and I've got both of these in me. We have probably both of them in all of us, but who think, I'm poor, I don't have enough, I can't give money's tight, what about the bills, Um, got to do this, I've got to pay for this. We want to break that mindset and say, and have a repentance, which is just a change of mindset that leads to life. I can, I am able, I have got, I can contribute. God loves a hilarious giver, just to have that. And the other group we want to minister to 
And this is, this is um, really, I think, is deeply close to us. So many people here, pretty much everyone here, is deeply compassionate. Most people here work in incredibly intense, compassionate sectors. Maybe it's the NHS or in education or in charitable work or in, or in corporates that have a, a high value for social care. Pretty much, I mean, that's why you're here. That's why you're here, because you care, you care. And we can just be overwhelmed by compassion fatigue, by broken systems, by not being able to ever think we could ever make a difference. That is actually a deeper and more personal ministry, I think, than the first one. The first one's a release into joy and, and hilarity, but I think... Duncan had a word earlier. There's also, we also want a ministry of restoration. And that's something I think only God can bring to individuals in your own working environment where you've just basically, or your, your own volunteering environment where you just come to the end of yourself. You're like, I'm done. I'll give privately, but I'm done in terms of systems. We'd love people, anyone who wants prayer for that, to be ministered to in that area and to hear God's word, his kind, gentle word, what he's wanting to say as a live word today for that. So, we're governed by whoever or whatever we worship. The first thing we can all do is make sure we're worshipping Jesus, and then out of that, the alignment, the restoration, the generosity, the faith to live into an economy of superabundance will flow. Thanks, Alice. Great. So, Duncan, would you mind coming to lead us in, um, in uh, some worship? And uh, I wonder if we could stand, and if, if you'd like to, feel free to sit if you prefer. Um, but an opportunity for us to respond. Just thinking back, Bex had that word in the first half about God sort of spotlighting things in, in each of us. Um, for me, this part of this has been a journey of releasing, opening my hand. You know, I've read that passage in Acts 2 and 4 so many times over the years and often been terrified by it. That's impossible. And I immediately feel guilty and frustrated and, and disempowered. But actually, for me, such a, a help is seeing actually, I'm, I haven't got to try and copy a system that was in place 2,000 years ago, I need to just trust God now and see how he leads me and how I manage my finances and how. So uh, wanna, and so we can respond, in, 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 particularly in those two ways that Alice mentioned. Um, uh, just remind me what they were again. The first one was... Yeah, so there's a sort of reorientation of if we think we're poor and we can't give anything, reposturing to say, actually, um, I trust you, God, that I can. And secondly, if you really have, have, have fatigued or burnt out of giving in your workplace or wherever, again, sense of God wanting to, to minister to that. And so you could pray with someone that you're with, or you can just respond to God privately, or come forward and Alice and I can pray if, if, if you like that. Um, but Holy Spirit, we just invite you into the room. You, you're here and you're speaking to us already. Uh, but we, we ask you, um, ask you to lead us into freedom. I think of those, those people in the, in the time of Acts there, the church. These were people whose world was turned upside down by meeting Jesus.
Some of them, some of them met Jesus face to face and were just blown away by, by who Jesus was and what he did and how he loved them. Bill talked about how he walked into the sixth form center at his school and just felt the love of God, felt the reality of God. He met God in that moment. And that was the same for those people in history. Uh, and then others in, in, the, in Acts chapters 2 and 4, they would have been next generations on. They wouldn't have met Jesus themselves personally, but they saw Jesus in the life of his followers. And that's our story as well. We see, we see Jesus. We've, t- we've touched and experienced Jesus personally and through other people. So, Lord, we just, uh, we just stand here and, and ask you to speak to us, ask you to liberate us, ask you to restore us uh, into people that live out your economy of superabundance. Amen.